Hey, Sarah. Yes, Josh? Are you ready? I think so. Great. But before we start, we here at the Puppa Pod, along with Dixon Place, stand with love in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in our communities and across the country against racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. And for more information and specifics on our respective anti-racism statements and plans of action, please visit DixonPlace.org and ShakeOnTheLake.org to find out how we're listening, learning, and working within our communities. Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Hi, my name is Jeanette Yu, and I think puppetry is a tool for community building and to explore really abstract landscape storytelling. Puppetry is hard because of physics, yes. It's like if we don't have solid form and gravity, it would be so easy. <laughs> Hello, hello, and welcome again to The Puppet Pod, the podcast in which we talk all things puppetry. I am your host, Josh Rice, and with me, as always, is my fellow curly-haired theater-making friend, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, uh, how are you on this lovely day? Hi, I'm great because, again, I have washed my hair for the first time in a while. I think the last time I did that was episode two, so it's been a little bit. Um, so the curls are abundant. Sun is sort of shining. I think I'm good. I, I, I love hearing that general hygiene update. I'll give one too. I haven't washed my hair, I think, since the beginning of quarantine. That's not to say I haven't been running water through it every single day because I have. I right. generally like subscribe to leave the natural oils in, let them right. do their thing. As a curly haired person, you know these things. Um, but I finally shampooed for the first time since quarantine began today, this very morning. So I was about to uh, say, your, your curls look rather voluminous. They're extra buoyant today with the humidity, I must say. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, speaking of uh, buoyancy, I'm super excited to talk to um, our guest today, someone who has an incredibly buoyant personality. Is that a thing I can say? Who is a super delightful human being, incredible artist, and I'm excited for you all to either be introduced or reintroduced to this artist. Please welcome my friend, I'm so happy to say, Jeanette Yu. Jeanette, how are you? Hello, I am well. I'm well. I don't have any personal hygiene update. <laughs> I have been, That's okay. you know, showering. Uh, my hair is getting really long. I decided, like, this is before the quarantine that I've decided to just let the hair grow. So it just so happened it's actually really helpful because I don't really need a haircut. That's really amazing. And it looks fantastic, I have to say. It looks really good. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I have no curls also, just for the just for the hearing public, <laughs> as you don't see the visual. So I have I have no buoyancy curl happening also. Well, still voluminous nonetheless. And and buoyant. And buoyant as well. <laughs> Uh, Thanks. That's a theme. Yes, Boy yes. Buoyancy. That's the title of this podcast. Buoyancy with Jeanette Yu. Jeanette, how have you been uh, hanging tough in these pandemic times? Uh, it's been for myself because I also uh, teach at uh, NYU in the production and design studio. So there was that sort of pivoting to remote learning yeah. and 
you know, sort of managing emotions, you know, disappointment, fear, and hopefulness, uh, and, you know, all that. So that has been pretty intense and probably will continue to be intense mm-hmm. as the world is still, in that world is still pretty uncertain. Uh, artistically, uh, I obviously, things are postponed and moved and or canceled. So there are some, like, you know, just facing the similar thing to yeah. with everyone. Just before all this happened, uh, I was working on a project called The Plastic Back Source. Robin Frohart, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that was like emotional. Like that is literally sitting at Times Square. I'm pretty sure that it is as it is in tech. I mean, I have not been keeping up with any of the potential unrest maybe, uh, but I'm pretty sure that it's sitting there as it is. So it's both like, bittersweet in some way of like the last show that I have to sort of put a stop to it was a puppet show mm-hmm. you know like as a you know so that speaks a little bit to my heart as a puppeteer yeah. and of course it's sad to have to put that to bed right now right, right. but we like as soon as I we were talking that as soon as like things can open back up that show can definitely come back and everybody's ready so you know so that's what's happening yeah, that particular show, I know uh, my partner, Emma Wiseman, was a mm-hmm. puppeteer working on that same show with you at the same time, right in Times mm-hmm. Square. And uh, I remember it, this was also at the very beginning of the pandemic where we just didn't have a lot of information. There was a lack of leadership and any like straightforward messaging from anyone. And, you know, as we were all getting all of our information from all these different sources, I was like, oh no, what are they doing? Why haven't they stopped yet? You know, and Broadway had stopped and, you know, the show had continued to that one dress rehearsal and then stopped. But I was just, you know, concerned for everybody down in Times Square because we just knew at the time in the country it was just the heart of what was going on and and how difficult and uncertain all of it was. Yeah. And as you know, puppetry is like you do are in very close proximity with people all the (laughs) time. You're like literally all breathing in that same one foot square inch to puppet this like two inches tall puppet. Yeah. yeah. So there is like from like a a social distancing, of course, back then that wasn't like the term yet. Right. from that standpoint, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's challenging, you know. But I'm a, at the same time, I'm in, in the very beginning stages of conceiving a project with a friend of mine that is based on a play called The Blind, cool. which is an um, 1890s symbolist play that is very appropriately, the storyline is that 12 blind people being led by an older priest into the woods and the older priest have to be passed away. Mm. And they are all trying to figure out what should they do. Like, like first they didn't know he died and then like trying to go like, who can lead us? But they're all blind. So there's like a really interesting, timely conversation about leadership as you have yeah. just pointed out. And um and we're thinking about it being some sort of like a puppetry meditation song experience, you know, very, very early stages. But that's what like both me and my friend Mia Rafenio both were starting to talk about what we can do. Yeah. And also with the digital forum, you know, that's another thing. I think that this pandemic has shook us up in the way of for theater is asking the question of like, what is this relationship that we have with audience you know how do we create a performance and liveness to performance and what does it mean with this new platform 
I don't think it's like I think that most people would say that it's not a substitution, and I don't believe like I'm not in the I'm not in the in the segment of population who like is worried about oh my god live theater is going to go away. You know, I don't think that that's going to happen. You know, but I do think that it it raises some questions of like if you're artist right now, how do you take advantage of and use this medium to still sort of still make art? You know and Yeah, yeah, I was. We we had to, of course, postpone our puppet festival here because, again, you know, gathering in small, tiny spaces to see tiny objects is <laughs> certainly challenging for this particular medium. But at the same time, too, there's something I think unique about puppetry because it's so small that cameras and these new digital mediums maybe puppetry lends itself a little bit better to adapting to. Would you say mm-hmm. that pivot is kind of something that this form works a little better for? Yeah, totally. I think uh, I think the camera definitely works really well. Um, I think that the the fact that like camera automatically investigate the idea of scale, mm. which I think is a lot of what puppetry is. Like you know, I always say to people that you know, I also do a lot of lighting for puppetry besides like devising my own work and or performing for other people's work. One thing I would say is like lighting puppetry is really hard because you can have something that is like you know an inch tall next to something that is like twelve feet in size. There's no like people by and large you like your face is somewhere between like four foot to like six foot you know in that range. But like puppetry, like all bets are off. <laughs> like there is like you just don't know what you are lighting. Like you know a worm happening with a giant like dinosaur bird that is eating it, and you have to have both of them being. You know, legible, and you're like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, so the medium of camera is good because it automatically sort of camera automatically asks the question of scale. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you, there's clever way that you can play with that. That I do think that puppetry lends itself really well. And I was, I was also like, because as I mentioned, like at NYU, in the last semester. Like I'm not in the acting studio, so our experience is different. But in the acting studio, a lot of them have to pivot into performing into digital platform very quickly because of students' projects. Yeah. And one thing that was super interesting was that the chat function becoming such an important way for people to feel connected with the audience. And because puppetry create world in a very different way, like dialogue, that singular exchange of dialogue, like. Your line, my line, your line, my line, is not absorbed in the same way. That I also feel like that they can allow this medium, digital medium, and allow for this chat function to coexist together really well. Like the distraction, I feel like is less, less of a interruption. Right. Yeah. Because in normal circumstances, we would tell the audience shut the fuck up and you know do what we do. And and now yeah. they're we're getting live time. Feedback often, and if you're able to take it in while also still concentrate on, you know, the small bit of performance you're you're focusing on, there's something really exciting about that exchange, which is different from what we typically are are engaged in. Yeah, totally. You know, and I was wondering, like, for younger audiences too, because like in a normal performance, a younger audience is like if they scream out and go like, "Look at that dinosaur, mom!" Like everybody in the in the room is like, "Shh!" Like, you know. You know, and this maybe this is a great medium to introduce to younger audience about performance arts and storytelling. Yeah, you know, because they they're much more free to like respond 
engage without that limitation of yeah. what is a proper etiquette. Yeah. Once upon a time, I was uh, part of a children's theater company for many years. And yeah, to your point, they are so excited to be engaged and involved and vocally so while watching the performance. So you really know whether things are landing or making sense or not and what they're really responding to. Uh, And that honesty, you know, of that audience is so informative as a performer. And to your point, Mm -hmm. if we can find out more ways to translate that to this digital form, then I think we're engaging people in a different way, but also one that seems to be a natural progression based on how technological our society is becoming. I would also say that the pandemic, another aspect of it is that it shows, I think, I hope that people will remember this, that art is an essential part of our lives. Just imagine this time without any performances, without any you know, music, you know, like all these, all the, all these museums are doing virtual tour now. And so that you, you know, actually like there were so many rooms that I didn't get to see when I was at the Louvre because, you know, there's just no time right. that now I can actually go down the hall and explore that. So I think, I think that then, I think the good thing that comes out of this pandemic is that hopefully we'll remember this. And, and as artists, I do think that we need to do better at reminding people that, look, this is like art is not optional. Yeah, art is actually quite essential to our existence and our sanity and our uh, exploration to the world. When you can physically, mm-hmm. you know, being able to see the Louvre side by side with the architectural museum from Egypt, like those two things are like kind of exciting, you know, right. because people are pivoting to this platform, and so now I can sit at my own home, being able to visit the world, so to speak. You know, of course, it's not the same, right. you know, and it's not a replacement. But I think there are some kind of good aspect that come out of this. Well, and certainly the access component where I think some people might feel they aren't welcome for any number of reasons, especially uh, socioeconomic ones. And now, because we have this ability to access things in a different way for maybe the first time for a lot of these institutions, uh, the barrier to that kind of access, you know, assuming people have an internet connection or a phone or a computer, they can see these things for the first time. And that is a very cool thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Jeanette, earlier in, in the conversation, you referred to yourself as a puppeteer, but I know oftentimes when people ask us what we do as theater makers that puppeteer doesn't adequately describe often what we do so when people um or you're having a conversation with someone and they ask you what you do where do you start generally oh that's a really tough question yeah uh uh actually years ago i went to cal arts so i have very strong influences from jamie geyser yeah. and susan simpson uh and um and i also pause the it's also a big influence because he literally like live in LA and we've done a couple of projects where I was like helping him and, you know, setting up lighting in or like observing his process and stuff like that. So there was a like, really heated backyard discussion one time <laughs> where Paul was like really asking Jamie Geyser and say, would you consider yourself a puppeteer? And Paul is like really adamantly saying that we have to consider ourselves a puppeteer. And Jamie sort of like said, well, I do, I do 
you know, I make films that have puppetry aspect. Like there was like a really heated conversation yeah, yeah. about that. And since then, I've been thinking about this for years and years later. Like this is a really big question, right? Because there's nothing more difficult for a puppeteer to hear when you say that I do puppetry and the response is like, do you do birthday parties, mm-hmm. right? That's yep. like, you know, even though it's not about birthday party being a problem. No, no. And, and plenty of puppeteers do a great job of doing those things. Completely true. Yeah. But there is like, but the experience and relationship to puppetry in this country is, is limited yeah. to certain types of entertainment or circumstances. Yeah. And even though we have amazing historical performers in this country that ranging from doing great birthday party, for example, to like doing completely like avant-garde, different like abstract work out there. There was like the range is huge. We have like, there's so many puppeteers that we can name right. that do that. There's still for the general public, it's still a very considered a niche, narrow discipline. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the short answer to your question is like, it really depends on who I'm talking to. Right, yeah. And that I think the number of words get add up depending on who I'm talking to. <laughs> yep. Like, yep. You know, like talking among like ourselves. Like if if you know, like I guess if Paul Luna asked me that question again, I would say I'm a puppeteer. Yeah. You know, but if like Live Design Magazine asked me, like you know, I heard you're also a puppeteer, then I'll have to, you know, sort of qualify it with say what I do. You know, mm-hmm. and particularly I think in the in the world of theater, I don't build puppets for other people. My focus is pretty much where I involve as an artist mm-hmm. with my artistry in lighting and projection, if I'm like engaging in that collaborative space, or I make my own work from the ground up. You know, but I generally is not, uh, uh, and I'm not a puppeteer for hire in that way, that right. I, will, I will perform in a collaborative process, but not, not, I don't, you know, I, it's that scene from, um, what is that? Being John Malcolm Fage. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The scene where he's going down the newspaper looking for under P and looking for puppeteer. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that is, uh, that is like, of course it's such an interior puppeteer joke. Totally. Yes. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. You know, like, yeah, I don't even know if we have a newspaper that would list that. I don't like, think, yeah, I don't think you can go to backstage.com and like look under the puppetry section <laughs> for like the gigs that are coming up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what I would, I would say, you know, and sometimes instead of using puppetry, I would say something like I engage in visual storytelling, which I think that's what a lot of puppetry is. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I know um, Dan Herlin, who is very inspired by Janie Geyser, also said something along the lines of, well, I'm a, a theater maker who uses puppetry. And, you know, he, because Dan, too, isn't a puppeteer for hire. He doesn't often get in there and, and do the actual puppetry himself as a manipulator. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. he certainly does all those other things that you had mentioned. And it's such a multidisciplinary art form and a hybrid one of you know dance and and visual art and uh, theater and storytelling. There's just so many things in this kind of like total making aspect of puppetry. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about that part of it for you. Like, what 
is that something that draws you to it? The fact that you aren't just manipulating the objects. You're also designing what it looks like visually with the lights and the sculpting the puppet itself and, you know, all those other elements. Absolutely. I think that that's my attraction to puppetry is that I, I, uh, you have to think holistically from all angles. You know, it's um, I just the, my latest, the last project I did was a shadow puppet opera with an original opera score. And I was, I, I, def, I designed and, and directed all the puppetry aspect of it. The thing I don't work with is I don't work with the singer. But it was so interesting. It, but it still means that I have to understand and think about what that focal voice is going, how it affects the visual. And then, like, we did a lot of experimentation of like, uh, layering on different imagery to create the surreal land and then and then you have to think about then you have to have like really basic logistic stuff like what is the sh what is the shelf that will allow the puppeteer to organize their puppets so they know which one to go in the sequencing <laughs> you yeah. know it's like it's just like that that level of like brain like puzzle solving and collaborative work that you also have to work with your puppeteer like you know I, I say to people often who have not engaged with puppetry process is that you have to develop a trust with your puppeteer to know that they will do the preset they will organize all the work and you need to work with them to figure out the limitation of like time and space and what is a, a good flow for the action Mm -hmm. So like even for stage management, that's a totally different way of thinking. You know, it's hard to like have say a, a you know, typically like you have like an assistant stage manager backstage who do with all the props, but those are not props. Those are puppets. It's a, you know, yeah. and like and if my puppet is like two inches out of reach from where I normally will have it, it can be a disaster, disaster. in a puppet show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. It's like you run around going like what have happened? So that level also like that's also the thing that attracted to me is like the human level of collaboration. Mm. It's a total collaboration that even though I'm directing a show, I have to develop this collaboration in a very like intimate way with the puppeteer to to get accomplished the visual mm -hmm. imagery that we want to accomplish. There is yeah. there is there's no auteur personality. I mean, not that that doesn't exist, obviously, but that gets in the way of the work, I think. Yeah. So that on a collaborative standpoint, I really like it. For a design standpoint, you have to think from the ground up all the time. And, you know, it's like, it's like you make a puppet and go like, oh, shit, that didn't work. And then you have to go make another one. Yep. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, just sizing it is a problem. Sometimes you go like, wait, I thought this size is going to work. And then you all of a sudden go like, oh, shit, I need to make seven of them all like slightly one inch shorter in increment. The joys of scale, yeah. But yeah, to like, totally. And recently I have a conversation about like even like what the set design means for puppetry. Hmm. You know, because it's so functional. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like often puppeteer design our own set because we understand what the thing needs to be. Right. Yeah. But if you are set designer for human work, how to translate that skill? Yeah, there's almost more flexibility with human beings because we don't have to build a human and change its size and make it have a particular physics-defying property to like move through the set piece. And for puppets, it's 
completely the opposite. And yeah, you're right. Like we have to really work well with a set designer who knows our work and is in the room with us or initially there from concept to design to be able to work with us in that way. Or we have to do it ourselves, which again is when you're talking about time and space, time in and of itself and the amount of time it takes to make a puppet show is just like its own concern. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, I hope I answered your question. I think you totally did. And we'll ask more when we come back with more Jeanette Yu. As a listener of the Puppet Pod, have you ever wondered aloud to yourself, or perhaps muttered under your breath, how do I become a puppeteer? Are you interested in being a part of a collaborative team of wonderfully weird humans making new work together in a supportive environment guided by professional puppet artists? And are you thirsty to see brand new works of original puppet theater from emerging artists? Well, then we've got a treat for you. The Object Movement Program at the Center at West Park in New York City. Object Movement is a program of the Center at West Park for the development and presentation of new works by puppeteers and object theater artists, curated by the incredible artistic triumvirate of Mike Okakuchi, Rowan McGee, and Justin Perkins. Since 2017, Object Movement has supported artists to develop their voices and their work, addressing eternal human questions and the urgent challenges of our society through puppetry and object theater, all culminating with an annual festival of puppet performances. Participants in Object Movement residencies and digital labs meet weekly to share the questions they're wrestling with and the discoveries they've made. Participants take turns sharing works in progress and offering and receiving peer feedback with moderation and support from the curators, culminating in a festival of lab experiments. Artists may apply with specific projects in mind or a desire to explore and experiment. A safe space for experimentation and embracing your inner, I don't know. Apply for an object movement residency today. For more information on upcoming showings and residency applications, please visit www.centeratwestpark.org backslash object dash movement. That's centeratwestpark.org backslash object dash movement. Drink the puppet Kool-Aid. Move some objects. Object movement. Well, we're back with more with our friend Jeanette Yu. And, and Jeanette, you were just briefly touching on your journey in puppetry. So I'm curious if you could share with us where you were before you got into theater and puppetry and then how you kind of made your journey to CalArts and then into the New York scene where you are now. Because you started out as an accountant. Is that right? Yeah. I actually went to uh, my undergraduate is from University of Washington in Seattle. At the time, I not sure if the school is still true, but at the time I was very uh, diligent and a very business conscious human being. So yeah. I decided it would be good to get a degree that seems sensible. <laughs> uh, so therefore, <laughs> I got a degree in business administration accounting. Wow, that's uh, very responsible of you. And, yes, uh, it is. It is. You know, my mom, I think, would have would have wanted something similar, like a, a, a physician or something. You know. Yeah, something feel like that you can, you know, going back to John Malkovich, there is a category in the classifier that you could look under and find a job. That's right. You know, like back in the days when people look at classified, (laughs) that's what you will find. 
But at the same time, my grandparents are filmmakers and directors uh, in Hong Kong and Taiwan when I was growing up. And so when I was growing up, my parents, my mom particularly, take me to many different sort of performances and foreign film and arts events in Hong Kong. This, that's where I grew up. And um, so I always kind of being exposed to this idea of art and performance, uh, mm-hmm. also particularly live performance, but I thought I would never really do it, you know? Yeah. Um, so for Curiosity, I double major actually business and theater because at the time they are two different schools and you can't do a minor. You can't, the school can cross that way. So fortunately, University of Washington at the time, Miss Aurora Valentini, uh, she was teaching a puppetry course there. And, and it's actually part of the requirement at the time uh, for the program. And so I just, for whim, I decided that why don't I take some puppetry class? It sounds fun, performing with objects. I mean, I always knew I'm not an actor, but I also wasn't sure like what is a good role for me if I'm going to mm. pursue theater at the time. I have not landed on design. I just thought that I would just check this thing out. And that, that class led me into taking an advanced class with her that doing a special project um, where I was making marinettes out of a wooden spoon and cloth. And spoons, Miss Fee is what, who we, how we say call her, had the largest collection of world wooden spoon that you can possibly think of. And even now, I still think about it. I wonder where that collection goes because it's literally <laughs> filing cabinets of it. And, and going back to an early conversation about what puppeteer have to be considering, it's like we have to be obsessed with so many things from yeah. like wooden spool, which is a perfect material for weight <laughs> and you can glue, you can, you can screw into it to like, okay, is this choreography actually looks interesting? That do we communicate yeah. what this puppet's emotion is about? Like we have to think about everything in between this. So I made a little um, puppet show called Bermintang's Musician, which is based on this children's book. Oh our, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I of these marionette spool puppets. And that was sort of like my start of investigating puppetry. Then I was, um, I was an artist in residence with the University of Washington um, School District where I teach puppetry as an artist in school. Oh, and nice. Yeah, so I built a couple of shows, you know. That was after I decided that maybe accounting isn't a good thing for me. <laughs> Pays the bills, but maybe not a the yeah, most, uh, satisfying thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. I also was a big believer that you shouldn't live life with whatever, hmm. you know, because it's like I don't want to be that 89 year old lady sitting at the window on a, in a rocking chair thinking, you know, if I would make a different decision when I'm like, you know, 40 years ago, what would life be? You know, I figure, mm-hmm. you know, if it sucks, I can do something else. That's amazing and brave, and yeah, I, I I love that idea, and you know, hope other people are embracing that too. Yeah, because you're right. Yeah, like if you want it, you love it, go for it. Yeah, and you know, if you couldn't do it, then you couldn't do it. At least you know. Yeah, at least you found out. Yeah. So then I went to Cal Arts. I simultaneously I have decided that I actually really like being a designer, lighting designer. So I pursued lighting design and thought that my puppetry career is over. And lo and behold, I went to Cal Arts and then, and then got sucked back into it by Janie Geiser because like her work is so amazing and different. And up to that point, my introduction to puppetry is very particular. And Seattle have a huge puppetry community. So I was able to tie into that. But Janie just attacked it from such a different angle. Mm-hmm. And so then I started working 
sort of taking classes with her and she uh, asked me to do a couple of lighting design for her show and sort of like Brandon Puppet came, Peter Schumann came to do a workshop with us. Oh yeah. Yeah, which was like really informative. And I, uh, I also, also went to school with Heather Henson um, at the same time. So like there's just a lot of confusion of like, that signs are telling you that you cannot quit puppetry. You shall yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, the universe was talking to you. You shall yeah. not pass. You yeah. must do puppetry. Yeah, you know, and then, so then after graduation, I came to New York. And of course, New York have a huge contingent of puppeteer, many different styles. I built a couple of small pieces and then got up sort of like the courage to build Are They Edible, which was an immersive theater piece about Odysseus and the Iliad with La Mama at the La Mama Puppetry Festival. And, That's um, amazing. And um, that had a component too, where like the audience was also experiencing the show with uh, senses, right? Particularly yeah. like taste and uh, yes, uh, smell and, and eating things. Yeah, they are, we, we, have one, we served them food all throughout the entire journey. So we kind of go from sort of like, like finger food appetizer to like we literally, there's one section that are uh, for the sun god section of the Iliad, uh, we actually cook. The Iliad and Odyssey, actually, both of them. Uh, for the Odyssey, the sun god portion of it, that we actually cook meat live on stage. Oh, wow. Then serve the audience meat. Um, yeah. You know, the, the interest I was exploring was this idea of hunger being the driving force of the Odyssey and the choices that yeah. they made. And then simultaneously, it's also about Telemachus being, the, being groomed to be the next uh, Odysseus. And so there was like this idea of like how military, fam- like how the lineage of military surface and the expectation mm. of military surfaces through generations is the, is the idea behind it. And so, um, so all these are drinking red wine, which eventually converts to um, the river of blood that Odysseus have to journey out of. It's the same wine that we pour down. And I presented it actually at Dixon Place for, for a workshop. It was very dramatic because I had water on stage. <laughs> so that was, that was a little bit challenging. Um, you know, that's one of the things, funny things about theaters. We don't like the elements on stage, right? Whether it's water or fire, you know, people know. tend to frown upon that. I know. <laughs> and I do have to say that as a, as a puppeteer, I actually love destroying things as part of that process <laughs> well i remember you were working on that natural series of natural disaster like action movie tropes in one of your pieces and you know we were kind of making these beautiful tiny sets and then like moving these tiny fake tornadoes through yeah, them <laughs> totally and you know it's so easy to kill a puppet it's so much harder to kill an actor Totally, it's yeah. Just... A lot of legal issues, you know, waivers. It's, it's yeah. not great. You can Insurance decapitate... is terrible. Yeah, you know, like decapitation is just so much easier with puppet. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so like, <laughs> so that's sort of how it becomes like, um, and like I meet so many puppeteer great artists. Tom Lee has been a long time collaborator for over a stretch of time. So so when I'm not doing my own show, I get to be involved as a lighting designer, a projection designer. Um, I also teach with it. I also teach puppetry whenever I can. So, so that's sort of my origin story. 
your superhero origin story. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, well, I remember we first met working the old St. Anne's warehouse uh, before they moved to their newer location when they still did the toy theater festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, I was lucky enough to be asked to work on a Genie Geyser piece. You were designing the lights for that piece. And lo and behold, you know, all these years later, you know, it, it's amazing to like chart the journey of when you like, Again, like you said, converge with these puppet artists. And, mm-hmm. you know, I met Tom through uh, grad school. And then we started working on Shanksmere, which you were the lighting designer on. Mm-hmm. And then we worked on a, an opera at the Here Arts Center, the Scarlet Ibis, oh, which yeah. you were also a part of. And then we were lucky enough to be able to teach a class together. Or I was lucky enough to work with you to teach a class together at La Mama with Culture Hub and the yeah. Soul Institute of the Arts doing puppet shows remotely through uh, <laughs> the internet. And, you know, yeah. what a very difficult, again, way to do it because of time and space concerns. Yeah, you know? totally. Time and space. Yeah. we are, And also we get to put our, our 3D printer, my 3D printer to, oh. uh, to the test, which was also good. You know, 3D that thing print- got a lot of work. Yeah. All of that experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you maybe again talk about some of these technological aspects again? As we have like progressed, of course, you know, it's very quickly with our technology over the last twenty years, let alone fifty, let alone year. Puppetry also is kind of benefiting from a lot of these advances, and um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how we were collaborating in this culture hub class with students in South Korea mm-hmm. and the types of technology then that are even better now, that was maybe three years ago. Yeah. And now the technology is just completely different and better, but also at the same time, other ways in which uh, you've noticed technology changing in your journey as a puppeteer, what we were able to do and what we can do now. Yeah, I think that puppetry itself have always have a tension, I think, between craft and sort of performance. Uh, I don't, and by that I mean that like a great puppetry, puppeteer friend of mine, Tori Ben, mm-hmm. um, from in Duke, she teaches at Duke University and she's a puppeteer. She built puppet shows uh, originally. And I remember this is like just before the cuffs of um, the 3D printer become become sort of more affordable and less theoretically that people can have it. And she was doing this puppet show where she needs to create, she wanted to create this sense of like a city sort of waking up and, you know, sunrises, streets get busier and stuff like that, this sort of scene. And she made a drum that can rotate with houses on it so that it feels like your car can be stationary and the background is moving. Whoa. Right? And she literally have cut up, I don't even know, probably like 500 sheets of foam core, <laughs> like into making tiny houses. And we all have like assembly line of people and volunteers that just gluing them together. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's like some really good analog technology. Yeah, totally, right? And so she and I started engaging this conversation that I said that, wow, I said that I wish that we have a 3D printer and we can take this to a test and see if we can print it. And she and I have a very heated debate because she thinks that the handcraft quality of it is really quintessential in this hmm. idea of puppetry. Yeah. And I think that that's what I mean by that tension. It's like sometimes it's like, where is that craft beautiful object idea and intersects with tools for storytelling or like the, the making, like 
can the making of it and the idea of it separate or it are, or are they in one package mm-hmm. like are they are they intertwined together like and does technology take away from that sort of more analog idea you know yeah. and i think that it's a cons is a little bit of like a constant conversation you know and over time in puppetry i do feel like particularly i think that like some of my my work and my colleagues work like you know tom for example or, or like dan's last piece is like really phenomenal in the way that he's incorporating cameras into it which right. is you know which is also uh, the amazing thing about like the shout out to dan hurlin is that if you watch dance as an artist it's amazing to watch his journey from where he, what the stuff that he was doing before to like now, you know? And I think that what is happening in the puppetry community is like we started to interrogate technology as part of the experience of craft, equating it the same way as like I'm using paper and scissors to make this puppet. So like the 3D printing isn't taking away from the handcrafted idea it's just a more efficient way than sitting in a room crafting it. So now the artistry is maybe about the paint and how do you build this 3D file that still have this quality to it. And like and camera, as we have talked about, become a great way to explore scale. Mm-hmm. I think what has shifted is like we no longer see the technology as like taking away our artistry, but really starting to become a tool of how we can have this dialogue. I would go back to Dan's piece, you know, that was like that last piece. And really the way that they green screen. Demolishing the everything. Yeah, demolishing everything. Yeah. The way that those camera works and the, the, with the projection and the, and the spatial relationship and the graphic quality of them was really in sync with the good old fashioned painted and the really sort of graphic uh, quality of the puppet, the new futurist design, like all those yeah. things are in conversation with one another, that the technology yeah. is not taking away that conversation. I think that that's the biggest, that's like the biggest shift, you know, like our Pete Shang's mayor, you yeah. know, like uh, having um, Sensei in front of that camera, it was amazing. It, it, yeah. Like the camera was not a substitution, it was an idea, it was part of it. And then he go right back into like his puppetry master and we don't we don't skip a beat we don't go like wait a minute why is this happening and you yeah. know and and that's that fluidness i think is is coming into play with with technology yeah there's that dialogue too specifically in that moment you mentioned with um koryusan in which you know the camera pans up from this miniature world and the puppet to then seeing sensei prominently on camera and that dialogue of seeing a puppeteer or not seeing a puppeteer, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. If you're a master puppeteer like Koryu-san, then you are not masked at all. You are seen um, Mm -hmm. and celebrated in that way. And then we very quickly go back down and back into the puppet in the, the tiny miniature set world. There's something really exciting about that dialogue of what are we choosing to allow the audience to see? Do we want them to see the puppeteers Mm-hmm. as puppeteers as opposed to like focal performing points mm-hmm. or are we really allowing the puppet to be forward and I think these new types of technology that we're incorporating is kind of blurring those lines a little bit yes definitely and the so the project was so definitely too because we're literally being able to collaborate 
over time and distance. Yeah. By yeah. by this technology and have a collaborative experience, you know, in 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 a way that you wouldn't be possible in without it. You know, in the right. someone have to fly and be somewhere. Yes. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, uh, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about technology specifically in puppetry with Jeanette Yu. Thanks. The Puppet Pod is produced in collaboration with Dixon Place, whose virtual programs are free and participating artists are remunerated. That's right. Artists getting paid to do what they do even during a pandemic. Donations help us bring together visionary artists and adventurous audiences and support the community during this challenging time. So if you like what you are listening to in the Puppet Pod, please consider making a gift to DixonPlace.org. Dixon Place's puppetry programs, including Puppet Block, Mine by Sheena Stripe, and New Money by Maria Camilla, are made possible in part with generous support from the Jim Henson Foundation and donors like you. Thank you. Uh, we are back with more Jeanette Yu. Jeanette, again, we've been talking about this idea of technology and puppetry and like you were talking about the tension between often this idea of craft and like these more analog technologies like a, a wooden spool, for example, versus, you know, Isadora and projection and, you know, the, the, the top of the top projection design software and all that kind of getting to your really fun remark that puppeteers often get away with murder. And I wondered if you could unpack that a little bit for people. <laughs> I, I loved what you said when you were talking about that. Well, I mean, because like pop, uh, because puppetry is involved with creating object or using object, right? Like the like one of the definition when I used to teach, I always say that puppetry, uh, a few of my tagline have always been like, puppetry is basically defined as animating inanimate objects. And people love objects. We love stuff. We just do as human beings. Totally, yeah. You know, and so I think that sometimes like puppetry can get away with, with murder. And by that, I mean that an example I gave was like, you know, sometimes we get so mesmerized and awe by these things that puppeteer are able to make, like, you know, like making a miniature pizza that looks like they have real pepperoni and melting cheese on it. And, you know, we just, we got so obsessed with that idea as an audience because we can't help it. And we forgot that the show have no ending. Or like, you know, or we, we like the show could be completely like, doesn't make any sense or have yep. no point of view. But, but that look pizza, at that pizza. <laughs> like it's amazing. Right. And so I think that sometimes like we, we you know, like or often people would say those puppets are so beautiful, which they are because they are, they are made for these circumstances and they're made with attention and intention and um, with this like really lofty goal of storytelling. And so they, of course, they're beautiful. They are, they are just like a beautiful piece of architecture. And, yeah. and uh, so there was this, this tension a little bit that I sometimes I feel like that, that is hard to address. You know, and this is also going back, I think that Josh, when we were talking, you also say about how this is also where real collaboration comes in, you know, yeah. because I, I know I cannot craft like Tom Lee. I just right. know that. So when I did Are They Edible, it was very important to me that Odysseus as a puppet has to stay constant. Mm -hmm. That, that as, a, as a one fixed point of view, 
puppets that don't change in size, that like the size manipulation is purely by everything around him versus like multiple portion of this puppet because I really need the audience to track it. And I really feel like it is really important to sort of, I define it as feeling naked, like feeling vulnerable and naked. And so, so the, the idea of wood, meaning our wood is an important material quality in the storytelling of this character. And I know that I cannot craft anything out of a piece of wood. I will probably jab my own fingers at best. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, at worst, it's like doesn't have any impact. Like I can hit this piece of wood like, you know, for days and there will be zero impact coming out of this thing. Yeah. So, you know, so I have to work with Tom. And now, now Tom is not just, it's another like really interesting relationship. I think with Puppeteer, with, like, like this is why we're all like, I think this is why Paul's point of like, we're all puppeteers. I think in a, in a, in a human acting piece space, there's a delineation between like props and all this discipline, right? This is a prop, this is a set, this is a costume. I think in puppetry, those lines blurs a lot because in this case, Tom is also helping me to realize the vulnerability of this character. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just like give him, him a picture and say, make exactly like this. It is a collaboration where he's translating my idea, but also feeding back and say, you know, what about this? And also like he understands performatively how to make it friendly for performances too, because he's also a puppeteer. He's not just like XYZ props person that I just pick out of the classifier. Like there was like, I, you know, there's this, I understand his work. I understand who he is. I understand he understands who I am. And so we have this collaboration. So, so that is a very top to, like, it's very like inclusive collaboration in the world yeah. of puppetry, you know. And we find our own clan. It's like it's like you know, you go to Sarah, you know, and Sarah will go to you, and you will go to you know Tom, and then we'll go to you know, like there's just like a very much like a tribe of like energy, too. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a. Puppetry still is one of the few art forms where like companies can still exist, you know, a tribe or a company. I feel like those are, you know, interchangeable terms where you're working with this crew of people that, you know, are fun to be in a room with. And then, you know, they're probably talented in some way. And then you can all kind of rely on one another to hold up the the thing you're trying to achieve, whatever that project might be. And mm-hmm. yeah, that idea of collaboration, I know, isn't unique to puppetry necessarily, but I do think it's very difficult for a puppet show to succeed without that kind of process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You know, and there are definitely ranges. You know, there are sometimes yeah. puppets, like, the puppet could be more like a prop mm-hmm. and there are sometimes that the puppet is like real full flash human being yeah. on stage yeah and you and i definitely have worked on project on both of those ends sure have yeah yeah well i want to see sarah i know is like a huge tech theater person and especially into like digital media and i was curious sarah if there was anything that you wanted to ask Jeanette about uh while we have her uh in our our waning moments of this episode yeah i think i just i really like this idea of technology being in conversation with everything else that's 
within a show or, or within a piece. I guess my question would be, is there a technology that you want to use that you haven't been able to incorporate in a show seamlessly or something that you look forward to using? Hmm. I, I actually really love what we were attempting to do uh, with the Sarah Lawrence class with Seoul Arts Institute. I think the idea of telematic performances, can performances be happening sort of out of time and space as a collaborative model relies a lot on obviously streaming technology and like technology even like this to breach this divide. And I don't think we have quite figured out what that is. And I think that will allow, like, you know, there was like, there was this really old picture. I don't remember when or who even took that picture. It was like a singular puppet that had marinade string coming out of it. And there was like bajillion puppeteer. Like, I want to say like 20. It's this amazing image of them all like controlling one string. And, and that combined with years ago, I was in this performance where there was this piano that is wired through the internet so that you can play forehand piano without having physically be in the space. And, and the piano will actually literally, you can see it depressed. So I'm in New York and somebody's playing, and one player is in New York, one player in, in, in LA, and the piano literally depressed. Which makes me go like, oh my God, if we can bridge that, that image of like the world puppeteer coming together from all walks of life for this one singular thing is possible if we can bridge this time and space. Mm. And, you know, what a way to be able to bring the community together. Because like, what's like that magical moment when you watch all three, four, five, or you know, even two puppeteers to all put their energy into just making this one thing. It's just so magical that I, I do wonder if, like, if we get to the point with these types of distance communication devices can get to that point that we can have those kind types of collaboration. Like what would that be? Right, yeah, like um, I've seen similar um, instances of technology like that, but they're, they're mostly kind of on the fringe or experimental, you know, so it'd be, it, would be super amazing to see that kind of become a more mainstream use of that technology. Yeah, I think, and especially yeah. right now, that would be so important to be able to, you know, continue this collaborative spirit that's so important to puppetry. Totally. Actually, there was a, uh, a person who teaches at NYU, uh, Itai, whom I actually met like a decade ago. And he is, uh, he graduated from ITP, the Institute of Technology and Performance from NYU. And he's like a, I don't actually know how Itai would describe himself, but he, like the reason I talk about him was because he is not from any of the puppetry lineage background at all. But he'd been building puppets ever since he was a kid from uh, pantyhose. And then he wanted to have a band. And then the way he say it was like, he wanted to have a band, but then he realized juggling schedule is really hard. And he didn't want to juggle oh, man. schedule. So he built these animatronic puppets. Like, so he have like a band member with him and yeah. they have like a whole album and they perform at the fringe. And it was all controlled. Like, this is like a decade ago, all controlled from his computer. That's incredible. Yeah, and you don't miss, like, and again, even though they were animatronic, like, he have, he's understand that analog enough, that, that it feels very analog. You don't feel like that these were just robots, and he'll have conversation in it. He has a song called the PH button, which is the penthouse button. So, <laughs> so they all go to the elevator and push the penthouse button. 
It was like the most hilarious thing ever. And he just, he uses his programming skill and his knowledge of ITP education and he built these puppets. That's so cool. That's so fun. Yeah. That is so fun. I know. It's Yitai Benjamin is his name. And you can probably look him up. And then a decade later, I ran into him like literally, I did not know that he was teaching at NYU. He was teaching it upstairs from where we are. And I was just like eating lunch. And he go like, wait. Did I know you? It was like, you know, I still think about that show. It is amazing. That's very cool. That was very cool. Yeah. Um, well, Jeanette, I have been loving this conversation with you, but we are, uh, we don't want to keep you too much longer. But before we go, we've been working on this kind of rapid fire series of questions that we call the Puppet Hot Pot. So we were curious oh, no. if we could uh, <laughs> put you on the, the Puppet Hot Pot, uh, ask you some quick questions and uh, just kind of give your, you know, quick top of mind response. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say something inappropriate. <laughs> I'm going to That's I'm what we're hoping for. Ship, yes. Yeah, ship off of the puppet puppet colony. Yes, and then you're going to be blacklisted <laughs> from puppetry. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay, so ready? Here we go. Puppet hot pot. Are you ready, Jeanette? Yes. yes. The puppet hot pot. All right. So, um is there a form of puppetry that you're most interested in right now as an artist? Uh, shadow puppetry. Uh, what is your favorite place uh, that theater or, or puppetry has taken you in the world? That's very hard. That's a hard one. Puppetry, favorite place? I don't know. Or a really interesting one. Really interesting one? Oh, I always loved the Toy Theater Festival. Yeah. I think that was super interesting. Just seeing all the different ways of interpreting what is Toy Theater. Yeah, 100%. And, and you can't ever miss John Bell's performance of explaining what is Toy Theater. Yes. Like with a song and everything. Great small works. Shout out to them. Amazing, amazing group. Yeah. What is one thing uh, that you would maybe change about puppetry if you could? Oh, wow. Uh, I would change? Uh, I guess it's uh, having more people understand what this art form. Like mm. understanding the history. Like, you know, like for example, it predates human being on stage. Yeah. yeah. That's how old this form is. You know, Love and that fun fact. I know it is. Yeah. It is predating human human actors on stage. Yeah, three thousand, four thousand years, I think. Um, yeah, amazing. and there was also also culturally in Islam, human being portraying something is not appropriate, so that shapes. You know, and then they have tradition of like the Karagos, who's like the clan, the free willing commentator. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and I know how that is translated across a lot of other religions too, especially in um, Europe, you know, when actors weren't allowed to portray biblical characters or they would be killed. Um, they instead made puppets and that's the the birth of a marionette or a, the little, little Mary. Yep, yep. What is a quarantine hobby you have developed over the last few months? <laughs> Aside from starting happy hour at three? <laughs> <laughs> one of us. One of us. I mean, uh, <laughs> I love that one. Uh, I actually have been one. Th one thing I've been doing is like I've been standing daily, what I call moment of Zen. So please, Trevor Noah, don't sue, don't sue me. I'm taking that from you. Uh, where it is basically a image a day that I send to my students just to let them sort of keep in touch and and I I love doing it because it's a way for me to explore. Like I gave myself a theme every day and explore that theme and see what images I come up with. So I get to know a lot of artists. A lot 
lot of like、uh, practices, a lot of discipline that I had never even heard of. So that's been my one of my quarantine hobby or ritual. Or yeah, yeah, I've received one of those from you during this quarantine, and it made me feel so nice. It was so like calming. Yeah, you know, just something to like to keep my mind occupied. Also. Yeah, stay connected. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were talking about how puppeteers are obsessed with things sometimes. So, is there anything, maybe not necessarily in theater or puppetry, but something you're obsessed with right now?、Uh, not right now. However, I would say this tagline that I have: "Black dowels are precious." Black dowels are precious. Yes. If you ever in your lifetime see a perfectly painted black dowels, you should not break it and use it to mix epoxy, for example. <laughs> That sounds like a real life story. Maybe you're speaking from experience there. You know how hard it is to spray paint or paint in general a dowel, wrong dowel, to be all black for puppets. It actually takes a lot of skill and a lot of energy and a lot of patience. You know, you try to spray paint it out in the wind, and it blow half of it onto you, and then you have to then remember to come back and turn it so that the other side can be even. But then, you, if you spray paint it too much, you stick to the paper. Like there's just, like, I can, I can go on the challenges of like. So if someone can devise a object that can hold the towel, so we can paint it appropriately, easily, dry quickly. Then yeah, we've solved puppetry then. Yeah,、Amazing. see, Sarah, Sarah confirmed. I absolutely、on. do. The amount of dowels I've had to paint. For Josh is ridiculous, <laughs> so I fully appreciate that, and I, I appreciate you for doing that, Sarah. She thinks Jeanette, this has been so awesome and such a delight to see you, and also like talk about the work we do in a really in-depth way. We really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Oh, good. And Jeanette, is there anything、um, you'd like to plug as far as where people can follow your work or a website or anything like that? Uh, they can always look at、uh, my website. Mostly have my design work or the some puppetry is just JeanetteYu.com. But you can also go to Fimeo and look under JeanetteYu, and there is some snippets and stuff like that. That is my work. Amazing. Like short videos and stuff. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks, Jeanette.、Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley, produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Additional editing by Josh Marks. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Borgolzia. Additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com.